0: Blood, Sweat and Fear is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus. The series is based on her best-selling books, Blood, Sweat and Fear, Cold Case Vancouver, and Murder by Milkshake, an astonishing true story, adultery, arsenic, and a charismatic killer. I'm Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Blood, Sweat and Fear. It's the story of Inspector John Vance. Vancouver's first forensic investigator. On March 9, 1947, Inspector Vance was summoned to an apartment in Kitsilano, Vancouver, to check out a suspicious death. 17 year old Ruth Cooperman was found naked and lying dead across Jack Cooperman, her 27 year old husband's unconscious body. That morning, Ruth had phoned her father, David Simons, and told him she'd be over to see him later that day. Around three o'clock, she spoke to her sister Esther and brother-in-law Lloyd Tufts and told them she and Jack would come by for dinner, that she was just running a bath. When the couple didn't arrive, the Tufts weren't overly concerned. The plans were casual and Ruth and Jack had broken appointments before. Meanwhile, other family members were trying to get in contact with the couple and finding the telephone line out of order, they started to worry. Around eight o'clock that night. Lloyd Tufts dropped around to check on them. Lloyd hammered on the windows and doors. After getting no response, he broke into the apartment through the kitchen window. There was a light on in the bathroom, and as he entered the bedroom, he could see two naked bodies lying on the bed. Lloyd was embarrassed, and he stood at the door asking if they were all right. The only reply was a groan from Jack Cooperman. At this point Jack's parents Harry and Sarah Cooperman and Ruth's parents David and Annie Simons arrived at the house. The scene in the bedroom was chaotic and confused. Lloyd's first thought was that they'd had too much to drink. He found the bath full of unused water and vomit in the bathroom and bedroom. The phone had been knocked to the floor. There was too much noise in the apartment and Lloyd rushed over to the corner drugstore and phoned for an ambulance, which arrived within minutes. Ruth lay on her back, blood streaming from her mouth. The members of the inhalator squad gave her artificial respiration for nearly an hour, but it was too late. The doctor arrived and declared her dead. Jack was taken to Vancouver General Hospital. Inspector John Vance and Detective Percy Easler were summoned to the apartment which was now officially a crime scene. Esla took photos while Vance had police gather up the bedclothes, vomit-stained pillow and bedsheet, a vaginal douche, silver knife and a brown paper bag containing the contents of a garbage bin. There was the leftovers of a cake that Ruth had baked to celebrate their eight months of marriage. Vance also had a salt and pepper shaker, what was left of a bottle of Four Roses bourbon and another of imperial single malt, as well as a decanter of undetermined clear liquid taken to his lab. It looked like a case of severe food poisoning, especially after police learned that the Coopermans were treated for vomiting and abdominal cramps the previous month. Vance, though, suspected drugs could be involved when he saw a box of luxury brand chocolates in the room and noticed that all six chocolates had their bases pushed in. Police were told that vomiting whatever he had ingested had likely saved Jack's life, but that his condition was critical, and if he did survive, it would be several days before they would be able to interview him. The autopsy of Ruth's body failed to reveal cause of death. Dr Creighton, the city pathologist, sent the sealed jars containing stomach contents, blood and urine, to Vance's lab. Vance began to test for and then eliminate dozens of different drugs and poisons until he could determine cause of death. He discovered that Ruth's stomach contents and the vomit on the pillow contained cantharides. She had died from an overdose of that drug known on the streets as Spanish Fly. The drug was made from a beetle and used for its purported aphrodisiac properties, especially its supposed ability to treat impotence. It was mostly used to stimulate breeding in animals, was considered highly dangerous for humans, and was difficult to get. After Vance's results were made public, the newspapers dubbed it the love drug. Vance tested everything that was brought to the lab from the house. There was no trace of cantharides in the chocolates or the liquids, and the cups and other dishes had been washed. The only evidence he found was a few fragments of the powder in a bottle that was marked Tuinol, a drug used as a sedative in the 1940s. The coroner announced there would be no inquest. Ruth's father, David Simons, was furious. He blamed his son-in-law for his daughter's death. Jack Cooperman, an ex-serviceman turned salesman, had successfully managed to deflect most of the blame onto his young wife. When Harry Cooperman Jack's father told Simons that Ruth had been the one to get the Spanish fly, Simons, a former boxer, hit Cooperman and was charged and found guilty of assault and battery. Simons wanted an inquest into his daughter's death and a chance to get at the truth. He wrote to toxicologists and pharmacologists at the University of Washington to search for information about aphrodisiac drugs. He harassed Inspector Vance, the police chief, the police commission, and the attorney general's department for the next two years until finally, in April 1949, he got his inquest and his daughter's body was exhumed. It was an emotional day full of dramatic accusations, denials, charges, and countercharges. Had Jack given the drug to Ruth as an aphrodisiac? Or did Ruth give the drug to Jack? to stimulate potency because she so badly wanted a baby. Jack's father, Harry Cooperman, a wholesale confectioner, said he and Simons had been the best of chums for 16 years and he'd known Ruth since she was a child. Cooperman wasn't pleased with the marriage. He thought Ruth was too young for his son. Harry Cooperman told the coroner that a few years back, Simons had shown him a little bottle and told him that it was good for stimulation. He called Simons a chippy chaser. Simons kept repeating the words lying, lying throughout Cooperman's testimony. Wallace Fenton, the son of Ladner's police chief, was subpoenaed and gave a confusing testimony about a conversation he'd supposedly had with Jack Cooperman at Fisherman's Wharf the previous year. He said that he and Cooperman were discussing hot chocolates containing Spanish fly and that Jack knew where he could get them. Cooperman denied meeting Fenton or having any knowledge of hot chocolates or how the small bottle of cantharides came to be in his apartment. There was no pact between he and his wife to try to conceive a child by using cantharides to stimulate potency, he said. Jack Cooperman changed his name to John Cooper less than three months after his wife's death. He had an affair with another 17-year-old, a married woman named Joyce Constantine. She had known Ruth, she told the inquest, because she and his sister had gone to school together. She didn't like Ruth, she said, and she didn't know that Ruth had been married to Jack Cooperman when she met him and started their affair. Joyce knew about Spanish Fly and worked for a dog breeder in White Rock. She called herself the Black Widow. Jack told the jury that Ruth had been a very good wife to him. But in the end, it was Ruth's character that was put on trial. Answering questions directed at him from the coroner, Jack said he didn't know that Ruth was probably unable to have children because she had contracted cell pingitis, an infection in the fallopian tubes often caused by sexually transmitted disease, such as gonorrhea. It's unclear whether Ruth knew she had the infection or when she had contracted it. I also don't know why it wasn't presumed that Ruth contracted it from her husband, but Jack testified that he suspected that his wife had slept with other men before they got together. When asked by the coroner if he knew she had gone with men previous to meeting him, Jack answered, I had a good idea, I was pretty sure, but I never asked her and she never told me. Asked how he would have ingested the drug, since it had an extremely strong taste and bad smell, Jack told the jury that his wife must have drugged their coffee on the morning of her death. Jack said he remembered that the coffee tasted terrible. I remember she brought the coffee into the bedroom and insisted that I drink it. So I drank it. About 15 minutes later I got a terrific pain and I guess I passed out. While Ruth's reputation was put on trial at the inquest, David Simons also had his character attacked. The coroner badgered him throughout his testimony, questioned his sanity, recommended that he see a psychiatrist and kept asking why he wasn't more cooperative immediately after his daughter's death. Simons answered because he was dazed at the time and that his Jewish religion required that he sit Shiva for a full week after the funeral. Simmons' lawyer, David Sturdy, objected heatedly several times, saying that the coroner was taking away all his client's credibility with the jury. Eventually, Sturdy asked to be excused, gathered up his papers and walked out of the hearing, saying that two years of his client's life had been frittered away. After Sturdy walked out of the inquest, the coroner, Dr Whitbread, asked Simons why he didn't come and see the police at the beginning of the investigation. Simons replied that his Jewish faith required a week of prayers following a death in the family. The jury returned a verdict that the death-dealing dose of cantharides was administered by a person or persons unknown. Simons was convinced the Jack Cooperman, now John Cooper, had poisoned Ruth and the inquest's unsatisfying result seemed to unhinge him. For the next few years, he stalked his former son-in-law, his new wife Laura, and their two young children. Cooper said that both he and his wife had received a number of calls threatening his life and that of his children, Cooper told a reporter. I know Simons was making the call, but I can't prove it. Police, he said, could do nothing. After their daughter Jacqueline was born, he put a letter in his safety deposit box addressed to the police to be opened in the event of his sudden death. On Sunday, January the 27th, 1952, around 9pm, Cooper and his wife Laura were sitting in their car outside their apartment on McBride Boulevard in New Westminster, when a car pulled up beside them and pumped two shots into the driver's side door. One bullet pierced the car body just below the door window. The other hit just beneath the door handle. Fortunately for the Coopers, the bullets were soft nosed and didn't penetrate the car's metal exterior. As the car, a 1945 Pontiac sedan, pulled away, Jack could see two men inside. He gave chase and managed to catch up to them several blocks away. He tried to force their car into a ditch along Cumberland Street. The driver of the other car put the car in gear and as it lurched out of the ditch, Jack, or now John I guess, got a good look at Simons and was able to get the license number. The police soon arrested the two men. David Simons, now 51, had gone to the Jewish cemetery that morning to visit Ruth's grave. He stayed for a long time. He became more and more depressed. His family went to a concert later that night and he phoned his friend Tony Kostick and asked if he would drive him to New Westminster, which is an area of Metro Vancouver, located on the banks of the Fraser River and about 25 kilometres from the downtown core. David Simons, a stocky veteran of both world wars, at first denied being the shooter, but when police demanded that he tell them where the gun was, he told them, You will never find the weapon. He told the police that Kostick knew nothing about his intentions. Costick was released and Simons was charged with attempted murder. At his trial on May 7th, Simons had some serious legal heavyweight. Senator J.W. Farris and Nathan Nevitas, future Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, defended Simons while his wife and daughter sat in the courtroom throughout the hearing. The defence argued that if Simons had fired the shots, it was not with intent to murder Cooper, but rather to scare him into a confession of guilt for the death of his daughter Ruth. Cooper was flippant and hesitant on the stand and did nothing to endear himself to either the judge or the jury, particularly when it came out that he was a correspondent in a divorce case after having an affair with a married woman. The married woman's name was blacked out on the inquest that I obtained, but it's likely it was a 17-year-old Joyce Constantine who called herself the Black Widow. Cooper said that he and his wife had received threats by letter and phone for the past two years, which stopped when Simons was arrested. Problem was, he refused to produce any of the letters for the court. Simons was convicted of attempted murder with a strong recommendation for mercy by the jury. The gun was never recovered. The case must have haunted Vance because the files that he took with him after he retired in 1949 included the original police report about Ruth's death, an itemised list of items taken from their apartment, his own case notes, crime scene photos, and newspaper clippings up until 1952, three years after Vance retired. In fact, Vance delayed his official retirement so he could attend Ruth Cooperman's inquest in April of 1949. That inquest went for nine hours. It was the longest on record for one case, and the newspaper articles are interesting for as much as is missing as what was reported. When I first ordered the inquest from BC Archives in Victoria, it couldn't be found. But months later it turned up, and then I received it and found more than 20 pages were missing. The text had been redacted, and several sections, chunks of the documents pertaining to Jack's medical condition, information about Ruth's connection to Joyce Constantine, as well as Jack's affair with Joyce just three months after his wife's death, her own juvenile record, and the reason why she was called the Black Widow, had been redacted under the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act, Section 22A. This information couldn't be released, I was told, unless it could be proven that Jack Cooperman, alias John Cooper, Joyce Constantine and her sister Gloria had been dead at least 20 years. I wasn't able to find their death certificates. I have to tell you that I had never heard of Spanish Fly before I started researching Inspector Vance and through him the death of Ruth Cooperman. But my friend Tom Carter had, and he sent me this ad that he'd found. I'll post it on my website with the other show notes and photos from the crime scene But it basically shows a naked woman, and it says Spanish Fly, she'll do things she's never done before, increases sexual desire, turns on anyone fast, and then there's a California address. I asked Tom, who's a well-known artist, musician, and historian, to come on the show and tell me about Spanish Fly. All all I know is is when you brought it up, I knew instantly what it was, because every 13-year-old boy knows what Spanish Fly is. It was like the love drug. Suddenly all things amorous were possible, you know, and it suddenly would be like head over heels and like you'd be totally hot for you, right? The simplistic mindset of people, you know, like that you slip it in somebody's drink and suddenly they find you hot or, or like the x-ray glasses. Did you get you a glasses for $5 and suddenly see through clothing? I mean, I can't <coughs> believe that people would fall for this stuff. And yet they did. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back in two weeks with episode 11 where Vance is involved in a manhunt for a murderer.